0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people. But I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And today I'm speaking with author and screenwriter Hanif Qureshi about music, life in Rome, writing and the future of the Labour Party. Whilst on holiday in Rome, Hanif was kind enough to take the time to talk to me about his writing and his current ideas, as well as some of his early works, like the Buddha of Suburbia. It was clear to both of us that there are lessons from Hanif's work in the early 1980s about growing up Asian in Britain that can be applied to events happening today, particularly in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. In some of our conversation, Hanif didn't hold back, using some of the racist language that had been used to abuse him over the years. It was all in context, but forewarned is forearmed. Hanif, thanks so much for your time today. I'm going to start with a little anecdote about my teen years Mm -hmm. uh, and then open up. I grew up in a small town in the Midlands called Kidderminster. I was a white working class kid in a not particularly sort of affluent area. You could call it a parochial upbringing. And I remember the first Asian kid arriving at my school and looking after him, really, because he obviously suffered massive racism. We had the NF around in those days in the late 70s. And then I remember leaving Kidderminster and moving to London in 1984 and discovering things like alternative bookshops and theatres and cinemas and I saw a film called My Beautiful Laundrette which was an assault on everything that had happened in my life up to that point I went from watching It Ain't Half Hot Mom on the telly in the late 70s to following a very comedic story of a gay Asian kid running a laundrette in South London and at the time I was using laundrettes in South London (laughs) and that's how I was first introduced to you it really challenged me as a kid as a teenage kid you know you've always been very challenging and played with notions of identity so I just want you to tell me a little bit about how you ended up seeing identity as such an important part of your writing
1: well thank you Tom for what you said about my beautiful laundrette I think the story of that film really came out of the desire for my generation of the children of immigrants to begin to tell our own stories. I mean, one of the things about growing up in the 1960s when there was a huge amount of of street racism and also in the 70s, as you say, the NF, the BMP and so on coming out of Enoch Powell and, and the rest of it was the necessity for us to try and find what wasn't really known then as an identity. We came out of the empire and we were told over and over again who we were. You know, we were Paki's, we were intruders, we were half-castes, we were mongrels. There were plenty of words that were used about this new generation of black and Asian kids whose families had come to the UK after the war. So I think I began to feel around the age of 14 and 15, particularly under the influence of writers like James Baldwin and also uh, Richard Wright and, and, of course, the Black Power Movement, Muhammad Ali was a huge influence. I think we began to feel that we had to assert ourselves in terms of our own names and our own unique identity. I mean, one of the things about racism, certainly at that time, was that you felt it was your own problem, you know, that there was something wrong with you that made other people uh, use bad words against you the whole time, make you feel that you are not as worthy as other people. When you become more rational, you begin to realize that it's the society around you that's the problem, that it's not your own uh, psychology that has, as it were, to be cured. So I began to think of myself around the age of 14 or 15, 16, as a writer. And uh, that, that identity, I think, really saved me from, you know, disappearing into some internal agony. I thought of myself as a writer. And some of my friends began to tell me that the stories that I had to tell, my father marrying my mother, a white working class woman, a middle class Indian man from Bombay, that that story was a new story. So when I sat down and began to write my early plays and then I wrote my beautiful laundrette and then I wrote the essay, The Rainbow Sign, I began to think I'm going to tell this story as honestly and as straightforwardly as I can. I want to talk about the racism that we grew up with, but I also want to make it amusing, to make it fun, because probably like you, I also grew up on British comedy. You know, we watched uh, sitcoms rather than, you know, intellectual French films. And that uh, sense of English comedy, I think, has always pervaded my work, despite my my efforts to resist it.
0: When you defined yourself as a writer in your teens, were you angry? Or were you just very, very curious and finding your way? Tell me a little bit about your own identity back then.
1: Well, I came from a writing family. My father had been a journalist. He'd written uh, two books about the history of Pakistan. He'd also been a failed novelist uh, several of my uncles have been journalists so it wasn't such a weird thing for me to think of myself as a writer and it was a label I sort of clung to I'm not just a packy I'm also <laughs> a writer and the idea of a writer guarantees you a future you know at that time also in the in the 1950s and the 1960s Tom the educational system didn't have much respect for lower middle class kids like us, you know, we were not expected to be high flyers and we were really dumped in pretty poor schools. So my father who decided with, along with me that I should become a writer really saved me. And the idea of becoming a writer was also of course related to pop. You know, this was the 60s and low middle class and working class kids, they had fallen in love with the blues. And so those kids were being really creative. They were working in fashion, they were photographers, they were in rock and roll bands. So there was a kind of exuberance about that time that lower middle class kids who didn't really fit in could turn themselves into, into David Bowie. So there were great examples, let's say, in the culture of kids leaving their backgrounds and leading creative lives. So although I was a kid of color and there were not many kids of color who'd been particularly successful in the UK at that time, I never thought that I couldn't be successful. It's a kind of Stupidity, or you might say, blooded-mindedness, in a way. But um, I never stopped thinking that I had something to say and that I had something to write about, and that certainly that the future would be multicultural.
0: You wrote in that recent Guardian article, which really touched me, by the way. You wrote, "My father and his family, who came to the West, were soon aware that the white master wanted it both ways: to use immigrant labor to build their economy, and to enjoy their share of colonialism, racism." To do that, we had to stay in our assigned place and acknowledge that nothing is deeper than skin. But that is over. Obviously, you're a great writer, and that's such a powerful piece of writing. I I read that. I felt like it was you almost slapping me in the face to wake up. But then that final sentence when you say, it's over. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: I think after the George Floyd protests and the worldwide uprising led by the Black Lives Movement, I really feel that it's a turning point, that this is going to be uh, considered to be a central event in our history. It doesn't mean that the struggle's over, that it's done and dusted. The struggle goes on every single day. But I think the recent protests have given strength to young people. You know, Uh, I have three millennial children and they all have a very strong sense of justice. I think they all have a really strong sense too that the existing system is not really working for them, you know, that their futures in terms of work, in terms of housing, in terms of opportunities, you know all this, isn't looking so good. And there isn't at the moment any real reason why they should buy into hypercapitalism. So their protest, I think, is the beginning. You know that in the next generation, there's gonna be between 25 and 30% of people of color in the the UK. We're gonna need a, a new settlement. If anybody's asking what we want, it's what we we want is equality. We want liberty and we want opportunity to show ourselves as being talented, as being worthy, as being equal. I think the Black Lives movement is a rupture and there'll be change. But as I say, I didn't think that it means that the change has already happened. As with feminism, as with the Me Too movement, that change has to be fought for and re-established every single day. But I was really uplifted by it. And when I saw the the statue of Colston being uh, flung into the harbour in Bristol, I really felt an uplift in my heart that young people were really standing up to make a new future for themselves, and, and who wouldn't be encouraged by that talk? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: If there was a young 14-year-old writer somewhere in an English town now, they've had the courage to write and define themselves as a writer or any young artist. What advice would you give them about finding their way in the world now?
1: I think these are going to be really difficult times for artists, Tom. If you're working in television or in cinema, it's going to be very difficult, certainly in the theatre and opera and so on. And there's going to be, as they say, a lot of challenges because of the coronavirus epidemic and also certainly the, the failure of the Johnson government to really deal with it in any positive way. It's been a disaster from that point of view. But at the same time, we have to see it as an opportunity for young artists to evolve, to find their voices and to work in new forms. And this is something that they have to do. I don't think if you're a young artist, you can spend your life waiting around for older people or for the corporations or the institutions to embrace you. I think we have to make uh, new institutions and we have to find new ways of communicating through the digital platforms and so on. And I'm sure that kids are, are starting to do this and outside uh, established forms has happened with pop in the 1960s. These are really dark days for young people and I'm more worried about young people and their futures than I am a- about anything else. But Tom, can I ask you a question? Do you mind if I ask you a question?
0: I wouldn't have expected anything more of you, mate. Far away.
1: Do you think that the Labour Party, as it exists at the moment, is capable of harvesting the energy of young radical people that we see, for instance, around the, the Black Lives movement? Do you think that the Labour Party would be a sympathetic place for young radical people to feel at home and express themselves?
0: Um, I can't answer that completely. I think there are very big parts of the Labour Party estate that would welcome the energy. I happen to think that two-party politics is basically a breaking point, though, Mm -hmm. in this country. I think those sort of big tent politics on both left and right have been tested to almost destruction. You know, there is so much scrutiny of everyday positions that you know, mean that the blurring of edges on policy positions and decisions is so much harder today. So I hope the Labour Party can change. I mean, I thought it was bleak in the 1980s, right? I was politicised through music. I worshipped the specials. You know, we wore our Fred Perry's. The lyrics spoke to us our anti-racism came from our music as much as our sort of political movements that we looked at mm-hmm. and i look at today's generation you know with less opportunity to lay roots in their communities fewer opportunities to sort of have decent housing or long-term sort of housing solutions yeah you know even if they get to college they're in minimum wage jobs without any protections there's a whole load of structural things that leave this next generation of workers more vulnerable than even my generation in the 80s so I worry about them and I worry about their role models and I worry about their voice in the system
1: that's what really worries me what do we do about that tom if you don't don't mind me asking i know this interview is supposed to be about me but i'm very concerned about what the existing institutions can do to further the lives of young people or whether those institutions are as you say whether they're useful anymore, or whether we need better ones.
0: Well, let's talk about that because actually, in your um, Guardian article, which it challenges anyone, and I know it's one contribution, and he, you know it's not your manifesto, but you do talk about merit in there, and you talk about how. You know, you would very often sit in creative meetings and think how many of these guys could survive on real merit. You're essentially making a comment on white privilege in your piece. In the way that I used to look around all the posh middle-class people in the Labour Party and think, uh, I wonder how many people in this room actually lived in a council house like I did when I was bored." There's a little bit of class envy on my part there, very unfair. But, how you know, how do we get to a place... Uh, you know let's just talk about culture and arts f- for the moment mm. how do we have a more meritocratic approach to culture and arts you know how do we give young writers a break how do the playwrights emerge when most comprehensive schools now are cutting their music teachers and their drama teachers where creative writing is you know lasting on the agenda to you know ancient use of grammar where do we go with that?
1: Well, i mean, as you know, I'm in Italy. I'm in Rome at the moment, which is a beautiful city and wonderful to walk around in. But I have to say, compared to London, it's provincial. And one of the things you notice about being in London is the energy and creativity of young people when you think of the number of galleries, of musicians, of recording studios, of writers and theatres and so on. Um, when I think about let 's say what makes me British, what do I like about being British? Do I feel British? I think of the 1960s I think of pop, I think of fashion, I think of all that energy, and I think of that being one of the things that we 're really good at, and I think that your party or your former party really has to think about investing in that and uh, ensuring that uh, the, you know that young people do not become bitter and disillusioned. One of the things about being in, in Italy is that you realize that the people you meet, they've all sent their kids to London because of its energy and spirit. So I think that out of this rupture, out of this disaster, out of this pandemic, there is possibility, but it's, it's not a possibility, you know, Tom, that we can take for granted. We have to make it, Yeah. you know, we have to do it. The question for me is whether the institutions remain the same with more black people or more women or LGBT people, or whether we can actually change the institutions to make another world altogether. So, the idea of just, as it were, messing about with capitalism a bit and changing the colour of the people who are in charge, or whether the fact that uh, as a person of colour, you know what it is to be put down, you know what it is to be defined by other people you know what it is for others to have uh, power over you and whether this will make a real change in terms of our politics and whether we can bear to be equal. I mean, one of the things about privilege, one of the things about the ability to humiliate other people and to feel superior to them is that the truth is it doesn't really do you any good at all because in the end you, you know that you uh, powerful people are creating hate. I think equality is a really good idea. But equality is far more difficult than having power over other people. Equality is difficult because you really got to engage with other people as equals. I think this turning point is really significant. But as I said earlier, Tom, I think it's just the beginning. The, w- the work isn't done. And I think there's going to be a huge reaction against the Black Lives Matter moment. And I think it's going to make a lot of white people and a lot of people in power, I think it's going to make them really nervous. And I think we're going to have a huge battle on our hands in the next five years over this so I just think this is the beginning of the struggle.
0: And what's your view do you think the current political parties can cope with that I mean would you have said in the mid-80s that we would have Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel in two of the most powerful officers of state?
1: Yes that's not necessarily an improvement in any way really I think that's what my argument was, that replacing a, a white face with a brown face doesn't necessarily, obviously, it's really important that we see people of colour as, as cultural ideals, but whether we can change our institutions in terms of uh, the distribution of power, that seems to me to be uh, far more important, even though, of course, we need, you know, I grew up at a time when you never saw black or Asian people on television. Now you see them on television all the time, and, and it's not always for the best. So I think we really have to have a discussion now about democracy. But can I just say one other thing to you, Tom, that's very interesting? I think it would be very disturbing if the left only inhabited culture and gave up on politics, so that we had a left cultural world and a populist political world. I wanted to ask you whether you had any thoughts about that, because that seems to me be what's happening at the moment
0: yeah I'm deeply troubled by it partly to do with my own escapism um because I walked away from a very brutal sort of political realm last year yeah and immediately started writing a political thriller with Imogen Robertson and I was watching you know every movie I've not seen for ages I basically absorbed myself in books, yeah. music, and film, and it was running away from politics. And I've now got to assess where that balance lies again. But I always think the change comes from culture first. The politics always catches up with cultural change.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, do you?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do, yeah. Uh, and so that's why I think the debate around the replacement to the Colston statue, it's already... You know, I was listening to good old Marvin Rees, the mayor of Bristol, on the radio the other day. he was yeah. He was basically saying... Who is this guy from London who decides what we put on our plinth? The people of Bristol are going to decide that. That is culture forcing political discussion about priorities and symbols and really powerful forces.
1: But I'm really worried about whether the Labour Party can contain the energies of young radical people, young radical people who are really concerned with climate change, they're concerned with the digital world, they're concerned with uh, race. One of the things that worries me about the Labour Party, certainly the new Labour Party at the moment, is that it's so concerned about showing that it's a a decent, reasonable, middle-of-the-road organisation that it can't use the energies of the young people who are so concerned about climate change particularly at the moment. I mean, I think that was one of the problems with Obama. It may be one of the problems with Keir Starmer is that they are so concerned about showing the world that they are you know upright decent respectable people and they become so conservative that in fact that they lose their integrity i wonder whether you had any thoughts about that
0: i guess having been an mp for 20 years well you're challenged every day you know you're making decisions every day you are voting every day on matters that impact lives and you're obliged to make compromises and priorities the real issue is is there a sort of Italian square, so a space where you can have a proper erudite debate about what the nation's priorities are. You mentioned climate change.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: you know, can the UK, have we got international apparatus now that can resolve these global issues and can the UK take a leadership role? I mean, I'm not sure whether it's just about the structure of the Labour Party, which mm. which does require the right kind of leadership and, the, you know, the right culture to be created. But Again, your analysis in your Guardian article, you go down to sort of the systemic problems, not just the structural problems, you know, the problem of capitalism being essentially exploitative. And, you know, how do we reform global capitalism, which really interests me because you take it back to that kind of the roots of this are an economic
1: one. When I look at my kids, Tom, I would find it very hard to make a case for capitalism for them, you know the deal in the post-war period, as, as you know, was that we would continually have a rise in our living standards, that our lives would get better every year. And they did in the 60s. We were very happy when, when we got central heating and my mum got a washing machine,
0: Remember it well, et yeah.
1: cetera, etc. cetera. But what am I going to say to my kids? Most of them, their mates are in uh, precarious jobs. They're really worried about climate change. They're living with their mums, another son of mine. He's on uh, the minimum wage, and he's going to be stuck on that for some time. So I really want to know what capitalism thinks it's going to do for us. And if it can't do anything for us, whether we can find uh, another way of of living that doesn't have to be called communism or Marxism or any of those old things, but whether we can use our creativity to invent a new form of politics, a new way of, of living together. I can't answer that, Tom.
0: No, I can't. But we're all reaching out for it, aren't we? We're reaching out for more sustainable lives. I mean, the one thing about lockdown, in the way you run your your life, lockdown's just given me space to sort of audit things, like little things, like just audit how many clothes I've got. I've had to buy new clothes in recent years because I've loaded a load of weight. Yeah, And then I looked and I thought, even though I've had to buy new clothes, I've still got too many clothes. And I just took a decision not to buy any new clothes for a year, right? Because I don't need anything. And yet I've got all these kids sending me Fred Perry links to cheap Fred Perry's and oh, nice. so I can relive yeah. my childhood again, right? Yeah. You have to make a conscious decision to live slightly differently, don't you?
1: I think lockdown, I really felt that a lockdown did that. I really enjoyed it. And I think other people really enjoyed it, you know, slobbing around the house, being with your kids.
0: Yeah. Did you sort of play more games and have more discussions or did you just find your own space within your house and it was nice to have everyone in your orbit?
1: Yeah, I was with the kids. We walked the dog, we hung out, we spent more time together. There was no pressure. We didn't have to go to any meetings or go out or do anything. And I think it was a really great time. And I really doubt... Now that any of us are going to go back to that old consumer model, you know, that was really forced on us for about 20 years that we should be celebrities, that we should be consumers, that we should buy stuff, that we should see ourselves as made by, you know, the ideology of consumerism. And I really don't see people rushing back into their shops and seeing themselves in that way. So we, we started this discussion, Tom, talking about identity. But I think that people's identity as consumers people being uh, what they bought, I think that's all over. And I think that the uh, celebrity stuff also, I think that's all over. And I think we're going to find a begin to find a, a new way to live and who to be. And so I'm despite everything, despite the collapse of everything, I think this is quite a creative destructiveness. And I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to come out of, of all this. Or do you think I'm just a crazy optimist, Tom?
0: I love your optimism because at the heart of it, it's quite a spiritual... Um optimism you have even though your politics are quite hard-edged i think in the analysis you've got sort of faith in human nature to overcome challenge i think that's what i like about your writing you're playful with human flaws because actually you're quite hopeful that humans can sort it out uh, maybe i'm wrong on that but no,
1: i'm a big fan of creativity because i grew up at that great time in the 60s and 70s when there was this explosion of young people who mostly came from poor or low middle class backgrounds who didn't go to university, and they discovered the blues and they were the most creative people in the world. And I still believe that about Britain. And one of the things about racism that's so deplorable is that it keeps people's energies back, Tom. You know, there's all these great kids. You know, look at Marcus Rashford as a great example. There's all these great kids. They want to contribute and they really feel that their talents uh, have been suppressed. Yeah. That's what racism does. You know, It just keeps really good, interesting, intelligent people. It keeps them out of the zone, and that's what's so terrible about it. And I think releasing the energy of all those young people from whatever racial background and class and gender and so on that they are, I think that that's a cause for, for optimism. And I think this terrible populism, the vulgarity and stupidity of populism. We've seen during the pandemic that the populist governments have been the worst prepared, you know, for the pandemic. And I think and I hope and pray that this awful populism is now over and that we're moving to a much more rational and positive place.
0: If we can come out of lockdown with a new consensus on ending populism and live in less consumer consumption-led lives, mm-hmm. then some good will come in the world. Let me just ask you one question, and you'll hate me for asking this question. Yeah, go on. Tell me, or tell the next generation of young writers what they've got to do.
1: Well, Tom, you just sit in a small room all day, you know, (laughs) waggling your pen. I mean, that's the conditions in which we as writers live, you know. And I tell you, in a 40-year career, I have to say, Tom, it's been a bit up and down, you know. And it's very hard to make a living at it. I have made a living at it, but I have to say that it's been touch and go at times, and i brought up my three kids through my writing, but I'm a very, very determined person, and I I work every day, you know, just as Marcus Rashford trains every day, and I don't give up, and I stick to my guns, and I don't compromise, and I'll never give up or give way, and if I could be an example to any young people who want to be writers, then I'd be very happy to do that and continue to say that, because I think You know, what we need are new voices in the system. We need to hear from other people. The important thing about the Black Lives Movement is that you're suddenly aware, and certainly I was on the demonstrations on the street, there are all these great kids, and let's listen to them. Let's not suppress them. Let's hear what they have to say. Let's put their voices into the system, and let's see if we can make a better world. And as I say, I hate to be thought of as an optimist, but I'm a bit optimistic, actually, Tom.
0: I love the idea that you hate to be thought of as an optimist.
1: Yeah.
0: Hanif, you're a brilliant writer, but more importantly, you're a fascinating and great human being. Thanks for your time on this interview. I've
1: Thank really enjoyed you. it. Thank you very much indeed.
0: I found myself hanging on to every word Hanif said in that interview. You could tell that he has great wisdom and powerful insight about the world around us. He's one of our country's great literary figures. I'm sure he'll continue to use that passion and powerful mind to make the UK a better and perhaps more humorous place to live. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullen and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray.